0: In 1994, 74-year-old Alvin Strait rode a John Deere riding mower from Iowa to Wisconsin after he learned that his older brother Lyle had had a stroke. Now, backstory here is that the two brothers had had a falling out about 10 years before. They hadn't talked or seen each other in the years since. And Alvin had lost his driver's license because his eyesight had become so poor. And the only way he thought he could get there was to get on his John Deere riding lawnmower and to uh, drive five miles an hour all the way to his brother's house in Wisconsin. Now, Alvin's journey had a lot of adventures. It took him six weeks to go 240 miles. But he arrived in Wisconsin, and the night before he saw his brother, he camped out, as he did each night, and this time in a cemetery. And there he met a Catholic priest. And the Catholic priest asked him what he was doing there, and he explained his purpose. And the priest said, well, I know Lyle. He said, but Lyle never told me he had a brother. And Alvin said, neither of us has had a brother for quite some time. He told his, the priest that he wanted to make peace with his brother, and that he wanted to tell him that what had happened ten years ago didn't matter any longer. Well, the next day Alvin arrived at Lyle's dilapidated house. Uh, Alvin wasn't uh, particularly um, spry himself. He made his way slowly to the door. He called out for his brother, and it took some time, but uh, eventually Lyle came to the door in his walker, and he looked out and he saw the mower asked what it was doing there, and Alvin explained that he'd ridden there to see him, and when he understood this, Lyle became very moved, and the two brothers had a reunion, and they sat down to chat just as they had done when they were children. For a couple of months now, we've been looking at a letter that James wrote to the early Christian churches, some of the churches he'd been mentoring, um, in the years that followed Jesus' resurrection from the dead. He takes on, as we've looked at over the last few weeks, a number of very practical everyday issues. And today, those issues involve both conflict that we may have with one another, as well as conflict that we may have with God. And James is troubled. He's troubled by an embarrassing problem that surfaced in some of the churches that he'd been mentoring. And the problem was quarreling between church members. The conflict was troubling. In fact, it prays into one of the most common objections that people who are not choosing to follow Jesus Christ have about Christians, and that is that uh, they know enough often about what Christians understand and teach, about what Jesus said, enough about love and peace and kindness and compassion to know that he expected us all to get along. So when they see people who say that they follow Jesus engaging in bitter arguments and holding on to grudges and quarreling about trivial matters, they wonder if what we say we believe we really believe. But James is not naive. He knows that disagreements happen from time to time, and that's not really what he's concerned about. What bothers him is the deeply selfish bitterness and even fighting that's taken place. So, I want us to look at what James has to say about this in James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. It's where we're going to start today. If you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible, it's on page 1842, um, but you can also look at the screens. Let me just read verses 1 to 3 of James chapter 4. He says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James starts all of this with a question. He says, um, Why do you fight and argue? And then he answers the question immediately and says, Because you're full of selfish desire. You don't have what you want, and so you'll do anything to get it. And James shockingly says, You'll even kill. And then he adds, you're so jealous of what other people have that you don't have that you've taken to fighting and quarreling. Now, again, it's not uncommon for any of us to have legitimate uh, disagreements, but what he's saying is that these should not lead to the kind of intense conflict that they're having. But James isn't just content enough to say, stop it. He moves on to get to the root cause. He wants them to understand that the root of all of this is desire, specifically selfish desire the word that is translated here for desire could also be translated as pleasure. And it comes from the root word from which we get our English word hedonism. So it's selfish desire for pleasure that's driving all of this. And it comes from within. He says, if it's not restrained, it can lead to violence and even murder. And I don't know that he's being literal here about killing, although the extreme of selfish desire can lead to all sorts of things, including murder. At a minimum, what he's talking about here is the idea that selfish desire and jealousy of what others have can lead to conflict with others, and it's a downward spiral. So he describes this as beginning with desire, desire for something, and then moving on to desire beginning to dominate our thoughts, and then he says we think of ways to get what we want, and we begin to plan, and then eventually that can lead to action. If we scheme long enough, we'll eventually act on our plans. In the New Testament, selfish desire for pleasure is always seen as a danger to the spiritual life. And one of the observations I've made over the years is that one of the ways this plays its way out is that we often begin to see the world as a zero-sum game. And we figure if we want something, we see this desire, whatever it is, for money or power or pleasure or prestige, whatever it is, we think that if we're going to have it that someone else can't have it. So what it does is it makes us competitive. We begin to think in terms of winners and losers, and we'd rather be the winners rather than the losers. Now, it's true at times, there are limited resources. Sometimes there just isn't enough to go around. And so we think, well, we need to grab for all that we can. And what James wants to remind us of is that Jesus taught us that when there are scarce resources, we need to share. We don't need to simply grab selfishly for all that we can. So James really here has had all that he can have. He knows that they've allowed this selfish desire to take root, that's the reason for the conflict. And if they continue to do so, they're going to remain in constant conflict with one another. So he suggests, why don't you pray about this? Why don't you ask God for what you want, what you need? And then he realizes, wait a second, that's not gonna work because what they're going to pray is selfish prayers, prayers that God give them what makes them happy. And he says, well, God's not going to answer your selfish prayers the only thing that will change is change things is to be transformed from within. So they need to deal with the root cause. Now, let me just stop here for a second because if you think about what James has just said, it may be a little unsettling because you may remember that Jesus frequently told those, of his, uh, those who were his followers to ask him for what they want, to ask God for what they want. He tells us to be bold about it, to be specific, to be persistent when we pray. So is James... Contradicting what Jesus had to say. Jesus said, pray about everything, ask God for what you need, what you want. And James is saying, well, wait a second, don't pray selfishly. So how do we know if our prayers are selfish? How do we sort all of this out? And what happens if we slip up and pray for something selfishly? Will God punish us? Well, the first thing we need to know is that the warning that James gives is serious. Our prayer should not be dominated by our own selfish desires for wealth or power or success. God's not a genie we go to with our three wishes and just ask him for specifically what we want in quite that way. That's not the way that prayer works. But at the same time, it is also absolutely true that God wants us to bring everything to him in prayer. He wants us to come to him and let him know about every need, every concern, every anxiety, um, but we also need to do so with an attitude of humble submission. Proper prayer is saying to God, here are my desires, but I want your will more than I want what I want. When I was in college, um, I was, uh, there was a movie that came out called Urban Cowboy. It starred John Travolta. Some of you are old enough to remember it. And there was this sudden and instantaneous fad for wearing cowboy boots and belt buckles with, uh, belts with big buckles. Some of you may remember that. And um, I got caught up into all of that and decided that I needed a pair of cowboy boots. So I didn't have the money, so I uh, called my parents and I said, you know, would you mind sending me $75 to buy a pair of cowboy boots? And my parents said, no. (laughs) So I gave them my want, my need, my desire, my thing that I thought would bring me great pleasure, and they said no. And it was about a week later when I thought, really, I want cowboy boots? I'm not a cowboy boot kind of person. And so I realized the wisdom of what my parents had said. You know, I don't think that James' warning here should make us hesitant to pray. In fact, I think it should do the opposite. I think that James even realized that by what he said here that selfishness generally leads us to pray less and to scheme more than the other way around. But even the act of bringing our desires to God can have a purifying effect on our hearts. So I think that we start by telling God what we believe we need We involve him in every area of our lives, but we also acknowledge that not every prayer that we pray will be answered. Sometimes that's a very good thing. It's up to God to see whether our requests will be answered or not, and sometimes we'll see the answers later, just like I did with my request for a pair of cowboy boots, and other times we won't. Sometimes it makes no good sense from our perspective. Now, we need to remember, it's not the size of our faith, or it's not the fact that we followed a formula. Sometimes for one reason or another, in God's wisdom, he decides that he's not going to answer a specific prayer. We need to trust then that he's wise and good and will do what's best, even if we don't get the answer that we may want. But James is also right here, that sometimes we do pray selfishly. We pray with wrong motives, and motives matter. But it's really hard for us, from our perspective, in our world, to know whether our motives are good or not. And so here's the way that I think we ought to think about praying. We ought to ask God for what we want. We openly acknowledge our desires. Tell him we're not sure if they are selfish or not. So acknowledge up front, Lord, we don't know. We don't know if this is something I should have or not. Now, in the process of prayer, sometimes it's very clear to us, oh, I guess that's probably not a thing I ought to be praying for. And we can stop. But regardless, and I think more often, at least in my experience, I'm uncertain. I don't know if what I'm praying for is the right thing or not. And I think that God says, continue to pray and I will let you know. I will clarify things for you. If we take a humble posture before God in our prayers, I think he will help us discern our motives either through changing our minds or through the answers or the lack of answers that he may give us. Praying in this way honors God. Also remember here that prayer happens in the context of a relationship. You know, often we're solely focused on our requests. It's good, but it's not enough. Relationship matters to God more than anything. In fact, I would say that God is often more concerned in his relationship with us about the relationship than he is the specifics of what we're praying for. In other words, God is relational, not transactional. That means that we shouldn't be so concerned about finding the right way to pray as we do in simply talking to God honestly and openly. Now, we need to be reverent in certain ways with God, but also remember that he has invited us into a conversation, and that's what prayer really is. It means putting God at the center of our lives, asking him for what we want, but, in, but first of all, telling him that we want his will for us first. We want what he wants for us instead of first telling him what we think he ought to do for us. So James started this chapter by talking about this conflict that we have with one another. And in verse four, he transitions to a different kind of conflict. And this is conflict that we may have with God, conflict we may not even be aware of. So let's look at verse four, beginning at verse four, and read just a few verses here from, again, from James chapter four. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? God. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That's why the spirit says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And really, he uses a shocking metaphor here, doesn't he? He calls them adulteresses. It's a harsh metaphor used to describe a sort of spiritual adultery because he's not being literal here. He's talking about unfaithfulness to God, not unfaithfulness in a marriage. But he's saying, if you love the ways of the world and its values more than you love me, you are committing a sort of spiritual adultery. You're friend of the world's systems. You become an enemy of God. And he wants them desperately to remain connected, spiritually connected to God and to be loyal to him. So much so that he reminds them that God gives grace so that they can fulfill their vows to him. You can't do that if you remain proud. You need to be humble enough to accept his help. The proud have no needs. The humble know that they need God. The proud have no needs. The humble know that they need God. I think the idea of spiritual adultery is helpful in explaining an important spiritual reality. On our own, we are estranged from God because of our sin, um, collectively and individually, because of our rebellion. We're separated from God. That's bad news. But the good news is that through what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, we can be reconciled to God. We can have a relationship with God. Now, in some ways, this makes sense to us because we've experienced it some time or another in our lives when someone has graciously decided to cut us some slack. It might be a boss, it might be a parent, it might be a coach. For whatever reason, they let us off the hook for something that we've done, and they give us another chance. But what Jesus does for us is even more startling. For one, he's dealing with an entire condition, the condition of sin, not just specific actions of sin, but the fact that we have a tendency in our humanness to be rebellious against God. But there's one other way in which it differs from sometimes the distant relationship we may have with somebody who cuts us a little, gives us a little slack, And that is that not only does Jesus, or through Jesus, are we invited into a relationship with God, we're invited into a friendship, into an intimate relationship, because Jesus calls us his friends. That means that when we disobey, we break his heart. We break his heart the way that a husband or a wife is hurt by desertion. It's not a trivial matter, but what he's saying is we're invited into an intimate relationship with God. Now, when James talks about friendship with the world, what he's not talking about is the physical earth that we walk on. He's talking about the world's systems, the world's values, and he says, these are often in opposition to the ways of God, and we can't be friends with both. We have to choose one or the other, and God wants our undivided loyalty. He's made us so that our hearts are only satisfied if we're in a relationship with him. He wants to be number one in our lives. And he must be more important to us than anything or anyone. We can't allow money or jobs or possessions or ambition or even another person to be more important to us than God is. Some of you know that here at City Church, our purpose statement is to love God and love others. And what you may not know is where that comes from in the Bible. And it comes from a story where a man came to Jesus and said to him, what is the most important commandment? The number one thing that I ought to keep. And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so the love God part of our purpose statement refers to a wholehearted commitment to commit to God with all that we are. It's abandoning the ways of the world and focusing fully on God. Now, sorting out the degree of loyalty we have to God and the degree of loyalty to, that we have to the world is a hard thing, and frankly, it changes from time to time. I don't think any of us can say that we're 100% in one camp or the other. There's kind of a sliding scale, and sometimes we're more on God's side than others. And what James is encouraging us to do is to concentrate and to focus on giving in, not giving in to our tendency to walk in the ways of the world's values, but instead to focus on our faithfulness to God. Now, he says this is hard, and so he gives some help and some suggestions in verses seven to 10 about how it is that we can make that more of a reality in our lives. Here's what he says, beginning in verse seven. He says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. He starts here by saying we need to surrender, submit ourselves to God. That is, to allow him to take control of our lives, to trust him. But he also says we need to resist the devil. And surprisingly, he says that when we do, the devil will flee from us. And so That seems a little bit surprising because I think we often have a misconception. We think of Satan and God as almost equal but opposite powers. And what James is telling us is that God is infinitely more powerful than is the devil. The biblical writers are clear about this, that God is infinitely more powerful. And so we understand that when we resist Satan and we pursue God, that, the, that he will run away. But resisting the devil alone is not enough because he also tells us that we need to come close to God, to pursue God, and he will come close to us. So it's a no to the devil and it's a yes to God at the same time. Now, coming close to God means making a commitment to clean up our lives. So James describes it this way. He says, first of all, wash your hands. This is a reference to Jewish ceremonial law, which included regulations every time that they were to eat, they had a specific way in which they were to wash their hands. What he's using it here is an example or a metaphor or a way of describing the outward things that we do in our lives. So our outward behavior. But he says that's Uh, important but it's not enough because he also adds we also need to purify our hearts that means our thoughts our attitudes our affections so we need to be clean on the inside and the outside and then he says don't be double-minded or the positive way to say that is to be single-minded that is don't let your loyalties be divided and try to keep one foot in the world and one foot in God's world It means a decision to stop doing whatever it is we know is sin in our lives, whether it's gossip or sleeping with our girlfriend or cutting corners at work or holding a grudge against a family member or someone that you may have been connected to for a long time. He says, give those things up. And then he says to them, be sad and sorry. This is a little troubling. He says, shed a few tears about a past way of life. And then he says, don't laugh anymore about the things that you once did that you thought were funny. Sometimes we have a tendency to uh, slip into a casual attitude towards sin. And he's telling us that the true response, the true sign of repentance in our lives is a deep and heartfelt sorrow for sin. And again, sometimes we're too casual about this. We presume that God is obligated to forgive us. And it's true that he is a merciful God. He is forgiving. But we need to be careful because true repentance is accompanied by sadness, and then he says at the end of this little section, humble yourselves before God and he will honor you. To humble ourselves is to admit our spiritual poverty. It's our understand our desperate need for God's help, but also to understand as demanding as God is, that he's also gracious and provides us with the help that we need to be able to move forward. That sorrow is not the end of the equation. That sorrow of, of sin leads directly to the thrilling joy of knowing the forgiveness that we find in Jesus Christ. Friday night, Kathy and I had dinner with a new friend, um, and in the course of the conversation, Kathy asked him about his own spiritual journey, and he described his experience um, of finding God's grace. It was uh, This man is in his 80s now, and he said it was about 45 years ago that uh, as a middle-aged man, someone invited him to go for a weekend retreat at a Catholic retreat center. And while he was there, something clicked in a way that it never had. He was a Protestant. He didn't know much about Catholicism, but what he heard was the story of Jesus, the message of what Jesus had done for him. And by the end of that weekend, he realized that he had found a new friend, and his friend was Jesus. You know, when we think about where we started this this morning, um, conflict between people is sad, especially when it can be avoided. But conflict with God is even more tragic. In the words that we've looked at today, James has said, we need to set aside our selfish desires. We need to be, we need to choose to be reconciled to others. And he invites us into our relationship with God. We can choose it over the world system, a system that cannot satisfy in the way that God can. We can choose harmony and not conflict in our relationships with one another. And even more, we can choose to be friends of God. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for what James has shared with us, these challenging words, and I pray, Father, first of all, that we would uh, follow his example of setting aside the selfish desires that often bring conflict between us and others. Help us to acknowledge those and to submit those desires to you. Uh, Sometimes, Father, those are good things that you want to give us, and so we would come to you, praying, giving you what it is that we want, we think we need, um, but also humbling ourselves enough to acknowledge that what we're asking for may not be within your will. And may we do that. Um, Father, may you bring us to a place where we can set aside the differences that we may have with one another and be reconciled. But most of all, Father, I pray that um, we would become your friends that we would not so embrace the values that this world offers and teaches, but rather understand that our true happiness and joy comes in a relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. And it's for that that we pray, amen.